Ahmad. So welcome everybody to the uh, second uh, Contemporary South Asia seminar term. My name is David Gellner, in case you don't know me, I'm a professor of social anthropology. Um, and um, yeah, please do come in, there's plenty of seats, in fact, sit at the back. Um, today's subject is particularly interesting for me because as a, as a Nepal specialist, I'm very conscious of the fact that you know, the nation state in South Asia is extremely young, and South Asia is a kind of natural experiment, if you like, in the effects of the nation state on culture, which starts the same, but maybe led in different directions by different states. And my, one of the, in my own work, one of the uh, statements has been very influential was the great French Sanskritist and historian who wrote the, the history of Nepal in, back in 1905. And, and, he, and he knew he was very knowledgeable about the whole of South Asia and actually Asia as a whole. And he wrote this kind of much repeated, much cited epigram that um, Sri Lanka is, or Ceylon, of course, as he called it then, is South Asia deviated you know, 2,000 years ago. Kashmir is, is India, South Asia itself. In other words, it's been through all the stages of South Asian history. Nepal is India in the making. Nepal is, you know, if you want to see what medieval India was like, pre-Islamic India, um, then you have to go to the Kamandu Valley, which is what he meant. So today's talk is very much, I think, in that comparative, uh, the, the title anyway, we have Pakistan and India, common origins, um, divergent trajectories. And it's based on Bavez's new book, which we have four copies here, for those of you who would like to buy one. Unfortunately, it's £40, but if you've got £40 in cash, you haven't been, you're welcome to take one home with you. And Bavez's amazing kind of, I suppose perhaps you only find this in South Asia nowadays, Renaissance man. He's had two careers. He did his PhD in physics in, in, in MIT. He's, he's a very distinguished scientist um, uh, in, in Pakistan, but he's also an extremely well-known public uh, intellectual, uh, which is um, in itself quite a brave thing to be these days in South Asia. And if you look at the, 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 the list of, luminaries who've endorsed this book. It just shows you uh, how distinguished and how, how well connected he is. So we start with Noam Chomsky, Francis Robinson, Tariq Rahman, Rajman Gandhi, Ayeshi Siddika, Philip Oldenburg, and finishing with our own advisor, Dave G. So uh, without further ado, and over to Thank you, Professor Gelder. And thank you for setting up the theoretical background the framework for this. You all know that Pakistan today is reported almost exclusively in terms of the crises that it's enduring. It has had to go to the IMF now for the 21st time. It is desperately seeking funds to survive the next few months from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE, from elsewhere. Politically, it is in turmoil. Its economy relies principally on unskilled labor exported to the Middle East, as well as the export of textiles, which is not a very high technology item. And on the other hand, we see that India is doing rather well for itself materially. It has now exports in high technology fields, software, computers, pharmaceuticals. It's got a space program that now is a rather advanced one, being one of the few countries that has spacecraft circling Mars. Recently, it sent a 
a spacecraft to the moon and sent a lander on that. Now, there's an enormous gap that separates the two countries now. But this wasn't always there. 1947, the difference wasn't all that great. In fact, Pakistan's economy was in the 1960s growing faster than that of India. Its space program preceded India's. In fact, uh, the first sounding rockets were launched in 1962 or 63. And that was before ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization, was formed. So what is it that has happened and how can we trace its historical roots? For this, I think one should not go back just to 1947. One needs to go back far into the past. Well, where does Pakistan record its beginnings from? Ask any Pakistani kid. And what he's learned there is that Pakistan was not made in 1947. It was made in 712 AD when the first Muslim conqueror, Muhammad bin Qasim, landed in Sindh. And uh, that's when it all began. Of course, it's complete nonsense, but that's what kids are taught in our schools. But I, let me talk a little bit about the title of this talk, Common Origins. Okay, so 712, let's keep that in mind. And this is about 70 years after, after the death of the Holy Prophet, Prophet Muhammad. About 300 years after that comes Al-Biruni. Here is a scholar, a man who's a traveler, who's very interested in knowing about the world around him. And he comes with, a, with another conqueror, this time a serious plunderer, Mahmud Ghaznavi, Sultan Muhammad Mahmud Ghaznavi. But Beruni is not interested in going around with the Sultan. He's interested in learning Sanskrit. He's interested in learning about what's around him. And he spends 13 years of his life learning Sanskrit and learning what uh, the ancients have um, in their books, the Brahmins principally. He looks at the, at the people over there and uh, although by now there is a substantial Muslim population, people who look like me and several others in the audience, he doesn't regard them as Muslims. Instead, he identifies someone as Iranian, somebody as Afghan, somebody as Turk, somebody as coming from Central Asia, the rest, people like me and many in the audience, he calls them Hindus. He doesn't differentiate between the those who recite the Kalma and those who go to the temples. He calls them all Hindus. Why? Because they're people from Al-Hind. Now, Al-Hind comes from Sindh. Sindh is a 
is a word i don't know where that came from but it's it's linked with the river the indus it's called sindur darya and so he says they're all hindus now that was the level at which people were actually at in those days there was an enormous amount of syncretism there was uh, okay they there were shrines at which both hindus and muslims worshiped there was the bhakti movement which lasted for several centuries and i'm, I'm skipping over a lot of history and if you want details this is the first part of my book the five parts you had even up till the time of the moguls that uh, the moguls in their courts had hindus almost in equal numbers and in fact the generals that the moguls employed were um, often hindus furthermore they married into hindus they married the rajputs in fact no mogal emperor is a pure is born of a of a muslim woman it's uh, they 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 have somebody has actually calculated the various percentages which go from 1 in 4 to 1 in 12 something like that it it becomes more and more uh marriages cross marriages and so the purity is entirely lost at this point you could say that although there were wars between the moguls shivaji in south india nevertheless there was a degree of uniformity of uh, of being able to live together and um, not always was it comfortable particularly when there was a very relig- very religious mogal emperor at the, on the throne and that was at the time of aurangzeb so we can dis- we have two poles one is that of akbar akbar the great akbar e azam as he's called who believed in syncretism who in fact tried to start his own religion called deen e ilahi and in fact tried to incorporate christianity and buddhism in that as well and he did that for pragmatic reasons because if you have to rule over such a large part of india you can't make religious enemies so that was the time when the mogal empire spread was the most powerful the most inclusive the decline of the mogal empire comes about with aurangzeb and that's something like 100 years later and that's when the insistence was on purity purity of belief this was also the time when when uh, muslim purifiers so purifiers of islam gained strength like shawaliullah so these are common origins but now the common origins start to diverge and remember that our ultimate goal is to understand why partition came about and why the two nation theory gained currency and that in fact is the 
the the the thread that runs through my book. While ruling India, the Mughals were people who enjoyed hunting, looking after their lands. They liked poetry, singing, dancing, all that. They weren't interested in intellectual pursuits. They left business, finance, accounting, all to Hindus, and they thought that this, this is uh, not a very decent thing for a Muslim to do. So, yeah, they did learn Arabic and Persian, and uh, Urdu was developing at that time. But in the courts, there was not much discussion, not much curiosity about the world around them. In fact, this is the time of the European Enlightenment and the and the scientific revolution. And the ambassador, the, the, the English ambassador comes and he presents um, various scientific gadgets to the court of uh, Emperor Jahangir. And uh, everybody, of course, very, very interested in the spectacles that he's brought. He brought big chess filled with all these gadgets. There was a telescope. Now, the telescope had inspired a lot of curiosity in Europe. But here, um, in the courts, well, people took a peek here, a peek there. Yeah, great. But they didn't try and understand what made it work. They didn't try to duplicate it. And so... Now, I'm going to skip a large fraction of that history and come to the coming of the British. So the British bring with them the ideas of the Enlightenment, the ideas of the scientific revolution. Of course, they came initially to trade and then to rule. The British East India Company makes its way into, into India Initially, it is uh, just uh, to trade goods, but then they gain more and more influence. They didn't fight any big wars except for two. Uh, and they were not uh, huge wars. But in time, they took over all of India. Now, at no time were there more than 50,000 of them, and they knew that in order to rule such a big subcontinent, they would need uh, support. They would need administrative support from an educated class over there. And so this is around the time of 1835, Lord Macaulay comes up with his educational reform. Um, and this basically says that the Pachalas, the Gurukuls, the Maktabs, and the Madrasas, and these are the traditional educational institutions for Hindus and for Muslims, respectively. He says, we're not going to fund them. We're going to fund schools where they teach science, English, math, geography, the stuff that is going to be helpful to us for ruling India. Here is where 
I think the beginnings of the two nations is. That's the real starting point. You know, in history, you can't locate any one point, but I think this was extremely significant because of the very different reactions from the Hindu and the Muslim communities. So the Hindus were, um, there was a strong reaction against it, but in only certain parts. However, a ground had been prepared for, for adjustment to modernity. So Raja Ram Mohan Roy, the Brahmo Samaj, and other people like that had put their weight behind it. And so there was grudging acceptance at the beginning, but later on, more and more. And they said, okay, you British, you better give us more schools, more colleges, universities. And so they took off in a certain direction. But Muslims had by and large, a very different reaction. And this reaction was exemplified by the protest by, that the ulema made in Bengal soon after 1835, I think just in the months after the Macaulay reforms were announced, in which 8,000 and some 800 mullahs, ulema, they wrote in protest at this and said, we don't want your education. Keep it. We have our book, which has got divine guidance and which is better than anything that you can teach us. And so, no, thank you. Well, that was maybe not so clearly expressed by other Muslims across India, but it was expressed well enough. There was resistance to that learning. And... There are only a few instances where this was resisted and where there was a different outcome. Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan, he was a Muslim reformer, like uh, the Brahmo Samaj, like Raja Ramon Roy. But you see, there were many others among the Hindus. Among Muslims, he was the only one. And by the way, one of my chapters is about him. And it turns out that he's a... Uh, He's a very interesting character, extremely interesting character about, which, about whom everything is hidden except for one thing, that he's the one who invented the two-nation theory. Well, he sort of did, but uh, not in the sense that it is understood in Pakistan today. Also, what is hidden from public view is that he was a radical reformer of Muslim theology. In fact, to an extent that nobody else anywhere in the world, including Egypt, including Turkey, has gone so far as this man did. But all that is hidden from the Pakistani public. So that's why actually I had to write this book, because there are so, much, so many things that are hidden from our people that uh, an honest version of history had to be written. Anyway, to continue on what I was saying. So the educational gap between Hindus and Muslims widened. If you look at the statistics in this book, they're absolutely appalling. The University of Calcutta, which was the first university established by the British on the subcontinent, and this was in 1856, 
it had several hundred Hindu applicants and it had just a handful of Muslim applicants. And uh, when the first graduating class emerged, it was a few hundred Hindus who had graduated and just two Muslims, just two. And if you consider the size of the Muslim population then, well, it wasn't two to a hundred or several hundred. It was like uh, more like one is to three or one is to four. I don't know exactly how much. So then the question is, why were the Muslims resisting modern knowledge, science, math, and so forth, when in fact, it was the Muslims who were the only ones doing physics and math and science and astronomy and medicine from the ninth through the 13th centuries. And that was the golden age of Muslim science. And why did that percolate here onto the Indian subcontinent? Well, there are several hypotheses that one can give over here. First, the period of the flowering of Muslim science, of the Muslim golden age, that was inspired by Greek learning. And so if one looks at the rise of Muslim learning, it happens 150 years after the death of the Prophet. And it happens in Baghdad. And it happens through the translation of Greek works into Arabic. Now, the translation was the first part. Most of the translators were not uh, were not Muslims, but gradually the translators also became were more and more Muslim, and then the Muslims they started making genuine new contributions, and this was actually possible because in the courts of the caliphs, people like Caliph uh, Al Mamun, Abdul Rahman. Um, uh, Harun al-Rashid, etc. You had Jews, you had Christians, you had Muslims all working together. And it is through that intellectual ferment that new ideas were generated. And this lasted a long time, four centuries. Well, you could argue four centuries plus or minus half a century, but still a very long time. And then why did it die out? Well, you know, this is a this is well-traveled ground. Everyone has their theories on it, but what I see, and I, I think it's pretty clear why it happened. It happened because of the resurgence of the orthodoxy. The mullah triumphed over the scholar. The mullah triumphed over the over the businessman over the traveler, over merchants. So you see, Arab merchant, merchants in those days used to go all around the world, and they're very adept at this, and they brought back new ideas, new knowledge, and they were very highly sought after by the caliphs. But then the caliphs started looking for 
for legitimacy and who could provide legitimacy better than a mullah, than the clerics. If you are, uh, if your rule is sanctioned by God, then you are firm. And so the mullah displaced all the others and became the most important element of the court. And so this continued on what one sees in the three empires that were more or less at the same time, the Ottoman Empire, the Safavids, and the Mughals, was that they were uh, they had strong components of the clerics surrounding the ruler. And consequently, there was less new idea, less intellectual ferment over there. And that, to me, explains why it all went down in Islamic civilization in general. But then this had serious consequences for what would happen to the future of India. So comes the 20th century, and the 20th century now sees political movements emerge because the British are going to be leaving pretty soon. This was clear. Oh, can I have some water? <coughs> It was no rush, but uh, fine, any time that you can find. The, the, it was even before the First World War, it was pretty clear that the British would not be able to rule a continent which is so big. And it became obvious when the first, when the Second World War started. Now, this is the time when the existing differences could be leveraged. Thank you. And they would leverage very effectively by, by two different leaders, sets of leaders. One was Muhammad Ali Jinnah and the Muslim League. But then the other was M.S. Golwalkar and Veer Savarkar. Who uh, were who really are the ideologues of Hindutva today, and they argued for there being two separate nations which could never live together in peace. Okay, since I've posed the question and I've sort of answered, I'm going to wrap up with a summary. So comes 1947, you see that the Hindus are vastly more educated than the Muslims. In fact, you see a Nobel Prize being awarded to C.V. Raman, and I think this is 1920-something. You see, you hear of names like uh, Saha uh, and so many others, the quantum physicists. Among Muslims, they were some but very few educated people. So comes partition. What happens is that Pakistan inherits just one university, which was Punjab University in Lahore. And most of its good teachers, professors were Hindus who then fled to India. Subsequently, those positions were filled up. Those academic positions were filled up 
by those who really weren't very competent. But anyway, they took those positions. The number of universities multiplied, and it is constantly multiplying. We have 300 today. Unfortunately, they produce very little because unless you have an academic tradition, it doesn't matter how many buildings you build or how many labs you make. I mean, look at Saudi Arabia. It's got all the resources in the world. It's got the most, uh, uh, it's got the biggest buildings. It, it imports faculty from the United States, from the UK, everywhere, and yet they haven't managed to produce very much in terms of academics, in terms of science. I could say the same for much of the other Arab countries as well. So in a nutshell, in a world that is defined by knowledge, India has hugely outpaced Pakistan. That doesn't make India any kind of an ideal. It is way, way behind China, way, way behind Europe. Unfortunately, that has given India a hubris that uh, gives it the right to, to be a civilizational state, to say that it was the superiority of our faith of our culture, which has enabled us to get this far. That's not really true, because if you look at other countries, if you look at, uh, the, if you look at South Korea, if you look at Vietnam, uh, and Vietnam is such a great example of this, because here's a country that was nearly bombed back to the Stone Age by the Americans, but uh, which today produces mathematics students, which uh, are better than Americans. And the Americans are afraid of the Chinese, the Chinese are afraid of the Vietnamese. We humans are all endowed with similar qualities. It's only that some political systems, some cultures don't allow those qualities to be manifest or to be developed. What I'm hoping is that at some point, Pakistan, but more generally the Muslim world will realize that uh, Shutting itself out to the rest of the world is a bad idea, a really bad idea, not just because you lose out on, uh, on ideas in anthropology or history or mathematics, but because you lose out then politically. You lose out in terms of economic power because this is a world that is built on knowledge. Knowledge equals power. I guess I've said enough. Uh, thank you very much for listening to me. I know what I've said is going to rile up some people, but, you know, we've got to face the truth at some point. Thank you very much.